Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is part of your media diet. This is listened to by librarians. Thank you for being here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Periel Ashenbrand is today's guest. She's got a couple of memoirs out, uh, or actually she's got one out and then one on the way. The latest is called On My Knees. It is due out from Harper Perennial in June. Uh, and her name, incidentally, when you type it on a MacBook Pro, it autocorrects to Peril, P-E-R-I-L, but it's actually Periel, P-E-R-I-E-L, which, uh, which is a lovely name. So I should also mention that I just learned recently how to turn off autocorrect on my iPhone. This happened about two weeks ago. Like all these years, I had no idea that you could do that. That's how uh, technologically advanced I am. So now when I text people or I email them using my iPhone, I'm able to do so in all lowercase, which feels somewhat liberating and also makes me feel 
a little bit edgier, a little bit more technologically sophisticated, perhaps. Maybe a little bit younger. It's, you know, it's probably a midlife crisis of some sort. Texting in all lowercase, using acronyms judiciously, emoticons, uh, ironically. So, what else? Uh, I didn't sleep. Uh, I didn't sleep very well last night. I, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Do I sound foggy and disjointed? Uh, that's what's happening. I have not been sleeping well for the past couple of weeks. This is uh, one of my regular periods of insomnia. Happens from time to time. Uh, I go through these phases. And last night it was a nightmare. I had an actual, honest to God, nightmare. Uh, in the nightmare, I was in a swimming pool at a hotel some sort of resort hotel, and there was a pool bar. So, you know, like right away, it's a, it's a horrible nightmare for me. There's nothing I hate more than a pool bar. Actually, there are plenty of things I hate more, but I really don't like pool bars. It's disgusting to me to see people drinking while seated on underwater stools or standing there in the shallow end, uh, getting inebriated. And the reason is simple. They're peeing in the pool. They're peeing. That's all I can think about. People are getting drunk at the pool bar and they are eating nachos and they are dropping lime wedges into the water. And at least one of them is taking a leak. It's just unnecessary. It makes things feel cheap to me. If you actually need a drink that badly, get out of the pool. Like a, like a grown up. walk to an appropriate location. That's my feeling. We don't need to mix these two activities. So, uh, in my nightmare, there was a pool bar and to make matters worse, it was a sushi bar. <laughs> so we're talking, uh, raw fish in sunlight. We're talking, uh, sashimi and eel in 90 degree heat with hundred percent humidity. We are talking the smell of low tide mixed with chlorine and wasabi. And for some reason I'm there and I'm with my daughter, which makes it even stranger. She's two and a half and I'm there with her in the water at the pool bar and it's crowded and it's, it's always crowded at pool bars in my experience, which makes it even worse. So there I am and, uh, I'm standing there and on the bar, on the bar itself, along with an assortment of, uh, beverages and raw fish, there are knives Lots of knives, an assortment of razor sharp, uh, sushi knives on display. And my daughter grabs hold of these knives, several of them. I lose sight of her for a second. Uh, she grabs these knives and starts throwing them into the swimming pool. So of course, you know, I start to panic. There's a, some alarm. I set her on the bar and, uh, ask uh, one of the sushi chefs to monitor her <laughs> And I, I dive, uh, heroically down into the water to retrieve the knives. It's an emergency situation in my dream. And, uh, what makes it uh, sort of nightmarish or what escalated it into uh, even uh, darker territory was the fact that the pool turned out to be extraordinarily unexpectedly deep. It's like 20 or 30 feet deep, uh, deep enough that I was afraid at some, you know, at one point that I might get the bends. 
So I'm swimming uh, deeper and deeper uh, toward the bottom of the pool. And for some reason, I could see perfectly. Even though I wasn't wearing goggles, it was crystal clear. And finally, I get to the bottom. I get to the knives and I retrieve them. And then I push off the bottom of the pool with one foot and I'm swimming for the surface and my ears are popping and my chest is hurting and I need air uh, badly. And it's taking me forever to get to the surface. Too long. It's getting to the point where it's starting to feel dangerous and I'm concerned that I might black out. And uh, it was then that I snapped awake suddenly. At sort of like at the, at the height of my discomfort, I snapped awake and realized that I was on my back in bed in the dark. And I think I wasn't sleeping or I wasn't breathing in my sleep. Because I, I, remember, I remember sort of gasping for air as I woke up. Which uh, paints a really unattractive picture of me. <laughs> Imagine me on my back, like mouth open in bed, experiencing sleep apnea. So anyway, uh, this, this happens. I'm gasping for air. I wake up, uh, it wakes my wife up and, uh, she rolls over and I immediately start telling her about the dream, which I have a tendency to do because, uh, you know, when I wake up, I'm up instantly. I'm instantly lucid and verbal. Uh, I don't need to warm up. It's, it's not like I'm like talking at full volume, but I can be uh, coherent right away after waking for whatever reason, sort of strange, but, uh, my wife is used to it at this point. And, uh, I start talking to her and I start telling her uh, about the dream, how there was a pool bar and it was a sushi bar and our daughter was there and there were knives and so on. And my wife, uh, listens patiently as I tell her this. And then she rolls over, she goes back to sleep, uh, you know, back to sleep, which she can do. She's one of those people who can just like roll back over or go back to sleep. No problem. I, on the other hand, spent the next three hours, uh, with the iPad and I was reading about Buddhism because, uh, when I'm up late at night, uh, between the hours of, of say 2 AM and sunrise, it's, it's never good. I've talked about this before and it's, it's a very common experience. The hours between like 2 AM and sunrise for anyone tend to be bad if you're up alone in the dark and you can't sleep. You're sort of automatically anxious. Your head automatically generates dark thoughts. And so what I've discovered is that it's not good for me in this condition to read the news or even entertainment gossip, anything that could possibly trigger stressful thoughts I need to avoid. So uh, I was employing a different strategy. I was trying to get myself back to sleep and I started Googling Buddhism in an effort to calm my mind. And I wound up reading some nice stuff, you know, some, some good logic, but I never really went back to sleep. It's almost a lost cause once I'm up. So I've been awake since about 2.45 AM and this is normal for me the past two weeks. This is what I do. And, uh, you know, it does strange things to a person's mind to not sleep like that. So if I sound strange, if I'm rambling or incoherent, if you can detect some sort of strange uh, tenor to my delivery, now you know why. And basically, I think I just want your pity. Please take a moment to pity me right now.
Thank you. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, okay, so let's get to the main event. Today's guest, once again, is Perielle Ashenbrand. She is a writer and a designer and a provocateur. Her first book, a memoir called The Only Bush I Trust Is My Own, came out from Corgi Books in 2006. And later this spring in June, she will be publishing a second memoir called On My Knees. And this one's going to be available from Harper Perennial. The official pub date, I believe, is June 18th, 2013. You can pre-order it right now. And uh, what can I tell you? I had a lot of fun with this one. She was great to talk to. I think you're going to like hearing from her. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Perielle Ashenbrand. I am in New York City, and I am sitting in my office, which is right off of Bryant Park, um, in front of a giant computer screen, which is um, currently black, so sort of looking at my reflection. <laughs> okay, so, and you work, what, you work in fashion? No, no, no. I um, I'm the creative director of a company called House of Exposure. Okay. Um, so I sort of curate all of the um, content. I work with a lot. I work with a lot of um, designers, uh, graphic designers, artists, photographers, um, fashion designers. Uh, sort of a lifestyle, artsy, beauty. Um, e-commerce site okay it's like yeah i'm just it's not my world so i'm just trying to like wrap my head around it and i'm also i've been racing to do prep so i was reading about um you know your your first book and your early forays into like the fashion world and billboard mm -hmm. um what is it called billboard i had body, um body I, is my billboard. body is billboard that was the first um company that i ever had it was uh t-shirt company and I was um, teaching philosophy at uh, Amherst College actually on a summer arts program for high school kids and I really wasn't qualified to teach philosophy at all. I was going to say I was, so, I was so impressed. That sounds so impressive. <laughs> I know it really does. It sounds really impressive. Um, it was. It turned out to be more of like a pop culture um, course than um, a Greek philosophy course but it was pretty politically charged. So we did a lot of like 
Noam Chomsky and Barbara Kruger and James Baldwin, and as their final project, I had them make um, T-shirts that sort of said something important, as opposed to like our bodies being used as billboards. Um, and that was where I made my first T-shirt, which was the only bush I trust is my own. And, which, um, which kind of became a little bit of a sensation. It became a lot of bit of a sensation, which was, first of all, shocking because it was really um, not really meant to. I mean, I was really just sort of making them for myself and my friends and fed up with the Bush administration, if you will. And um, I guess stores started to um, see them. Okay, so wait, but let's, me. let's let me ask you actually, because like, how does it go from like you're teaching a philosophy course for summer summer school students at Amherst to you make a T-shirt that says the only bush I trust is my own to suddenly these things are in stores and it's a craze? You know what I'm saying? Like, what happened? Like what are the um, mechanics. The mechanics are that I was making them for my friends and I was making them for myself, and I wore one into a store in um, Hollywood. I was living in L.A. at the time, and called Catwalk, which is like this amazing vintage store. It's like sort of very, um, God, I don't even know. It's like this designer vintage store. The owners are very avant-garde and like super cool, and it's just really like little treasure of a boutique in L.A. Where, where um, is it? Where is that? Because I live in L.A., so where is it? Um, it's on uh, it's on Fairfax, right before Melrose. It's south of Melrose. Okay. Um, of course, I, I've never I've lived here for twelve years. I've like never been there because I wear things from the gap. <laughs> well, we can send you into Fairfax. Uh, I'm into Catwalk. <laughs> it's four it's four fifty nine North Fairfax. Okay. Um, everybody, I think, in like the industry, in the fashion industry probably knows it because um, Renee and Michelle, the owners, have been, um, you know, sort of stylists and doing this for probably over 20 years. Um, and they flipped out. I mean, they I walked in the store and they're like, where did you get that shirt? And I looked down and I was like, oh, I didn't even remember what I was wearing. I was like, oh, I, I made it. And they're like, we need those in in the store. We have to have those. So I went home and I, I was silk screening them myself. I was going to say, I need, like, I'm picturing you with like an iron and like those felt letters. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. It was, it was like, um, it's like ink. Like you, it's, you have like this screen and then you have ink and like, um, like a rolly, um, paint brush. It's not a brush. It's like a roller. Like imagine like painting, like, an enormous wall with one of those like really big roller things. It's like a miniature version of that. Okay, I gotcha. And um, you're, it's like positive negative space. So like you have like a cutout on the screen of the letters, which I had made myself. Like I had sort of, you know, done it in like InDesign or whatever like program I was working on or Photoshop. Um, I mean, it was a mess. Like it was just, I was just like fucking around. Um, one of my best girlfriends is an architect and she's really smart and she taught me how to do it, but I had no idea what I was doing. But you know what? So I like, went home. It, it, it seems like sometimes when things take off, that's often the case. It's like, I was just having fun. <laughs> it was just for me. I was making them for my friends, whether it's like 
a t-shirt or a book or like an album or whatever it is. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, to- totally. Totally. I mean, I had no, I mean, I was a writer ultimately, you know, like that's, that's what I was doing. Like I was trying to write and, um, I had taken this job that, you know, Amherst because I was, it was, it was a job that like I could also write. I was working on my first book. So, um, as I think many writers do, um, I was teaching on the side and bartending and cocktail waitressing and, you know, whatever I could do that would also afford me the time to write. So Um, you you were working on the only Bush I trust is my own as you were making these t-shirts, like the title hadn't really melded with the material or was this a separate project? Yeah, no, 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 that was, there was, the title hadn't melded with the material. I mean, I didn't know that that was going to be the title until, um, you know, I think maybe six months later when it sort of took on a life of its own and then it seemed, um, really clear that that was the title of the book. I mean, since I, you know, pretty much write about myself, <laughs> that was like part of the story. Uh, okay. Um, Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, so you you, uh, you have these T-shirts come out, and then the the people at Catwalk find out about them, and then they start stocking them, and then uh-huh. it, go, it goes on to become, like, kind of a cause celeb. Like, you had big-time celebrities wearing these things, and uh, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, it was really sort of a, a political statement for, from my end, and... Um, my girlfriend started sending me pictures of themselves in the shirt. And so I said, I should, they were so cool. Like I had them pinned up in front, like in front of me at my desk on the wall in in front of my desk. I said, it would be so cool. Like I had like four or five of them. If I got, you know, I could make like a whole poster of these, like a hundred reasons not to vote for Bush. Um, I sort of want one. And so, you can have one. You're in. I'll get you one. I'll send you one. But you would probably want. I mean, they're a little bit outdated now. Now they're now they're vintage collectors items. We did one for guys, or I did one for guys that um, was my dick would make a better vice president. There you go. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> I have a really great shot of my dad in that shirt with with his sunglasses on. He looks like a Tom Selleck. I mean, my dad looks a little bit like Tom Selleck anyway, but with his aviator frames on. Um, I don't know. And then I got an order for like, you know, 200 shirts. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, how, I can't silk screen 200 shirts. This is like, I mean, that, I was it's like, like that commercial. It's like that commercial for credit cards where it's like, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> where all of a sudden, like the business grows too fast. And then it's like American Express is there for you to, I don't know. I'm recalling some was, sort of advertising it, campaign. No, it was, I mean, that's exactly what it was like. I mean, I had no clue what to do. I was like covered in ink. You know, like I was just. And you're in your apartment. Oh, my Mm-hmm. I had this really big, like, raw artist loft um, on the corner of like Pico, uh, a little bit east of La Brea, and it was this amazing, amazing loft. It was huge, and I mean, it was probably like maybe like three, four thousand square feet, and um, but it had no heat and it had no air conditioning. <laughs> see, so, but, but we had all these rooms yeah see that's the thing like i've lived in la for 12 years and i've had air conditioning for like five of them and it doesn't really matter <laughs> except for like and, and same thing with heat but it doesn't really matter except for like you know two weeks out of the summer and then you're just hating life you know like it gets like it was pretty brutal yeah. honestly i mean 
one of the rooms that for some reason I picked to sleep in um, was, and of course the windows weren't like insulated anyway, was um, right on the street. So I would like wake up on Pico Boulevard eventually, essentially, like feeling like I was like on a bus on Pico. Oh, God. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a pretty amazing, um, it was a pretty amazing space to work in though, honestly. You know, especially at that point, you know, this is so long ago. But anyway, like I pretty much had to figure out like how to get 200 shirts and how to have these professionally screened because Renee and Michelle at Catwalk were like, you know, somebody complained that like the artwork washed off. Like they bought the, they bought the tank top, they washed it. And then there was, you know, it was like a mess. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. So, <laughs> don't wash it. <laughs> so what, were you not using the right kind of ink? Um, I guess not. I mean, apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. I mean, it wasn't like professional grade um, ink, you know. I didn't even like read the instructions. It was like... <laughs> Like, I'm trying to see, like, whatever I could find in, like, the art supply store. But the real, I mean, what really happened was I went in back to Catwalk, like, two weeks later, and all the shirts were gone, and I figured, you know, Renee and Michelle had sort of gotten wise to the fact that this was, like, insane, and had put them in the back and, you know, had moved on to, like, whatever they were doing. And I asked them where the shirts were, and Betsy Johnson had come in and, like, bought, like, all of them. Wow. And she runs her own little, because, like, forgive me for not being super up to speed on women's fashion, but Betsy Johnson, I've seen her name. She has her own chain of stores and stuff, right? Yeah, Betsy Johnson was sort of, like, the um, punk rock fashion designer. I mean, she's it's not indie anymore. I mean, it's, like, a major company. Right. But, um, you know, God, starting in, I would guess, she's in the 70s. She's just, you know, like the the funky fashion designer. Yeah, you know, it's crazy to me. It's like how much money there is in fashion. It's just like wrapping my head around. Because I've like, for whatever reason, uh, you know, I don't know anything about it. And I'm sort of a, I'm a guy, you know. You will, you, you will after we get you into catwalk, though. <laughs> right. No, but I find <laughs> myself on Netflix watching a lot of documentaries with like great fascination. I will watch any documentary about a fashion mogul. Like, I watched the one about, um, and of course now I'm forgetting the guy's name. Who's the Italian, not Versace, but the other guy, who's just, like, kind of retired? Armani Cavalli? Maybe it was Armani. No, it wasn't Armani. What's the guy's name? Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. But anyway, I will watch these things um, with enormous fascination. Uh, You know, I watched the one on... um, the gal who runs Vogue, the gal who runs Vogue. You know who I'm talking about. And Anna Wintour, the September issue. Yes, I watched that. Like, so I'll watch any of these things, and it's just, it's super, super fascinating to me as artists how big of an impact they have on our culture, and you just don't maybe necessarily notice it because it's all around you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it's incredible. It really is. It's incredible. It's a massive, massive, massive industry, and. um it's it's really interesting because in a certain way, the the fashion designers are able to. I mean, somebody like you look at like Lagerfeld, you know, or he he he's like he can do whatever the fuck he wants. 
Yeah, I watched the one on him too, and and uh, and then I also watched the one on Vidal Sassoon. And these guys live like kings. They literally mm-hmm. live like they live like gold, you know, golden like thrones, and you know, like just an enormous, no, it's, it's, enormous grandeur. Lagerfeld has um, a cat named um, Shupet, apparently that he is that has like her own maid. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You know, they spare no. I mean, it is like beyond anything I've ever. I mean, it's like it's like the perfect example of what's sort of amazing and also so wrong with that world. Well, that's. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, first of all, what would it be like to be Lagerfeld's cat's maid? Like, that's your job. You know, like how do you how do you explain that to people? And then, secondly. It's like it's really hard for me when I see like that kind of largesse, you know, um, sp- you know, spent in that manner. It makes me freaked out because I think of how screwed most people are on this planet, and it's like this guy's got all this money and he's he's spending it on a maid for his cat. Like, come on! Not only is he spending it on a maid for his cat, but that maid is required to um, keep a journal of what she does, like hour to hour, with the cat. So um, I've got to get her. I got to get that made on this show. I want to talk to her. Oh, you, you, you for sure. It'll be like the um, Dominique Strauss con maid, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> like a total, a total fucking scandal. Oh my god, that's such. It's such a strange world, but like super influential. And like I don't. Here's what I find when I was when I watch these things is that I want to go in snickering and I want to as a guy be like. This is all such a trifle and it's such bullshit. But, you know, I think it was in the September issue when, um, and forgive me again, who's the redhead who's uh, Anna Wintour's right-hand gal who's like... Grace Coddington. Grace Coddington, who I re- who really steals the show in that movie. Like, she's super... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Super likable, sort of like, you know, the soul uh, of the operation or whatever. Uh-huh. And she, you know, explained fashion to me in a way that made me uh, have a little bit more humility about it or something. Do you know what I'm saying? She kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 she, set me, she set me straight. So I came out of it, you know, having more respect for these people and whatnot. But, uh, to get back to the t-shirts and, and this little craze that you generated, like, like how many t-shirts does a person need to sell before this thing becomes like, uh, you know, your bread and butter. Do you know what I'm saying? Cause like, you get a certain – if you start some sort of fashion trend and all of a sudden these things are in stores all over the country and you're selling thousands and thousands of them, like, obviously there's a lot of money to be made. T-shirts don't cost that much to make, especially in bulk. It was a fucking nightmare. I mean, it was like my worst nightmare come true. I mean, I was not trying to run a t-shirt business. <laughs> you have no idea. Like, I, which is part of why I stopped doing it. Like, I'll do it now if, like, I'll do it as, like, a favor, and then I get requests to do stuff for charities sometimes. Um, and so that I'll do just because, I mean, I really like it, and it's um, it's fun and it's interesting, but... Being in that, like, retail business world where you're, like, dealing with orders like that, and it's just insane, you know? I mean, it re- it really is. Um, 
And so now sometimes I'll do stuff for House of Exposure, and, and that's fun. And that's like, because I'm not at the mercy of these stores and their terms. And, um, you know, like you get paid in like a month, but then you don't get paid in a month. You go, oh, we'll get it to you next month. And so it's really, um, you know, unless you're, I don't know, like Kenneth Cole, I guess. It's, um, you know, and I'm sure T-shirts is like a minuscule part of some business. It's, it's really, you know, I mean, T-shirts might not cost that much, but the overhead is huge because you have to order tons of shirts and then you have to get them printed and then you have to get labels sewn in and then you have to get them shipped and then you have to get, like, marketing shit done. And, then I mean, it's like a whole big to-do. I learned more about, like, I became a businesswoman through that T-shirt company. Like, I didn't know shit about business until I had a t-shirt company yeah it's making me anxious like it's making me anxious just to think about all that like holy cow yeah i mean it's it's crazy and like suddenly like i was like running this business which i had i was like completely unqualified and unprepared to do what was that what's um, the, and what's the name of that company i was just reading i keep reading about it it's called like nasty girl or something or nasty gal is it nasty gal why do i keep using the word oh. gal I don't know. I don't. I don't know. That sounds like a porn site. <laughs> I shit you not. This thing is like a is a juggernaut, and I keep reading about this woman who started it, and she was sort of like, I want to say, was like, uh, you know, kind of into vintage clothes, and then started like curating online, you know, cool vintage clothes, and then it blew up into this huge thing. But um, nasty gal. Okay, I'll um, I'll check it out. <laughs> I promise you. No, you're going to go to some porn site and be like, this guy's a freak. I'm going to get, like, flagged. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, book. So you write the book. The book gets published. Talk about that. (laughs) That that was great. I mean, that was like, you know, that was like the dream. Um, That, you know, it's like your first book. It's like losing your virginity, I think, the first time. It's... um, you know, sort of the best thing ever. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, my, the first time I had sex was pretty good too, actually. But I guess it's not everybody's the best, the best thing ever. Really, I had Wait, an amazing. You had a you had a good first time. I feel like that's a very rare experience. Most people, it's like, yeah, it was awkward, and it was seven seconds, and there was a lot of pain or something. Yeah, it wasn't that long, but um, I was like so fucking ready to get laid. That How I old like, were you? How old were you? Um, I don't know, eleven? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So you wait. Uh, so what you're saying is that you really waited? Yeah, I really waited. Um, I I was sixteen. I think I was sixteen. Maybe I had just turned seventeen. Um, and I was yeah. I mean, I was dying to have sex, and so you know, I felt like. Fuck yeah! Like I, I know he did it. Um, and you didn't have any like weird feelings of guilt or like maybe I shouldn't have no. none. No, no, no. Good for you. No. So you were you were raised not religiously? Is that correct? <laughs> oh no, this is my, this is my uncle. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was a priest. No, I was not raised religiously. Um, that's nice though. That, that, I think that's a blessing because like I was raised Catholic and like, even though I wasn't into it by the time I was a teenager, that's, it still messes with your head. You know what I'm saying? There's still like all this, like you're still haunted by 
echoes of things people told you when you were like five, you know? I guess I was really lucky in that way. Like, I never had um, any of those weird, like, guilt, anything. Like, I've always... It's always it's I've always felt like pretty liberated around those areas. Um, well, I mean, you're on like on the cover of uh, your new book, On My Knees. Like you're in uh, what is it called? A bustier? I don't even know what to call a these. Bus- <laughs> you got it. Yeah, I am. I'm in a bustier. Yeah. That's uh, so. Yeah, you're, you're pretty. I mean, you're pretty. Uh, I don't know what's the word. Forward or un you're unworried, unconcerned. Like I would be. I think personally, like uh, frightened to reveal that much to of be, myself. To be in a bu- to be, to be in a boost, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody needs to see that. I just talked about that on a recent monologue about uh, <laughs> nudity. But, you know, you're comfortable with your body. There's not any shame happening uh, that I can tell, correct? Correct. Correct. There is not any shame happening. Um, I Well, that's conservative for me, I think, to be in the bustier. Like, I was naked on the cover of the first book. Right. With, like, in, like, an, a kind of an Eve-like, you know, biblical yeah. pose. Yeah. Yeah, it was very biblical. It was very biblical. Um, so, so Boosty, that's like covered up. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I have, it's tasteful. I actually, it's tasteful but sexy. <laughs> Thank you. I actually um, wore that to my wedding. Not, not. I had, I had a bottom on, but that was the top to um, my wedding outfit. That Boosty. Oh wow. Okay. And so, uh, who took the photo? Mark Seliger, the photographer Mark Seliger, took the photo. Oh, yeah, um, he's like Rolling Stone. He's big time. Yeah, yeah, he's big time. Um, How'd you get him? He, uh, he's one of my best friends, actually. Oh, it's good to have it. It's good, um, to be, it's good to be friends with a top-notch photographer, I think. It is, because he, you know, I, like, I can't stay in this position. I'm so uncomfortable. He's like, <laughs> shut up and don't move. You look good. <laughs> And you know what's funny too is I feel bad for these guys because they're constantly getting asked to like like will you take a picture of my kid or like you know like will you, you, yeah. do, will you do my will you, do, will you take photos of my kids like you know uh, recital and they're just like fucking a like I'm you know I, I actually went through that recently where I have uh, I have a two year old and my buddy's brother is like a really good photographer and I, I asked him and he just like looked at me like like he wanted to kill me he's like I, no I'm not doing it like I felt terrible. How, um, I was just going to say, how old is your two-year-old? Is it a boy or a girl? That's a little girl. She's like two and a half. Just like screaming cute. It's ridiculous. And uh, it's hard to take, you know, sometimes. Like it's just too much emotion, you know, like my head's going to Really? Yes. I don't, I don't know because I don't, I don't have kids, but I am, um, I'm pregnant right now. So it's, um, I guess I'll find out soon enough, right? How, How far along are you? Um, I am almost six months, but I feel like I've been pregnant for like two years. Okay. But you're in a good spot, like six months, like things really don't get super uncomfortable until like the ninth or whatever. The last month is just where you're just like rolling around and you can't sleep and, uh, all right. Well, things have been really uncomfortable since I found out <laughs> I was pregnant. You're like, you're like, I vomited. I've been vomiting this entire conversation, but, um, <laughs> It's you know, no. It's, it's Being really pregnant is a fucking nightmare, and <laughs> nobody tells you that. And I really, I really resent that. Wow. I really do because I feel like I got like totally tricked. I mean, first of all, we weren't trying. Like it's like the most insane timing in the world. It's like, oh, my book is coming out. Maybe I should be a fat pig for the launch party. 
<laughs> hey, I mean, you know, but people, I don't know. There's something I find it. Uh, a, I mean, not to sound like grossly pervy or anything, but I think there's something beautiful about a pregnant woman. Like I've always found them like ex. Like I think like a hot mom is hot, you know. And then, uh, secondly, um, I think people understand. You know, like you're, you're pregnant, you're having a child. You know, whatever. I mean, my husband keeps telling me that, but I just you know, and I think he's like I'm not really that like modest. You know, I'm like oh, like I'm. I feel like a pig. Like, I don't, I don't know, like, what everybody's talking about. Like, I'm just like, I want to die. <laughs> have you gained, you haven't gained that much weight. Come on. I mean, for me, I have. I don't know. I've probably gained, like, 20 pounds or 15 pounds, which for me is, like, you know, I'm, like, 5'3". It's, like, right. a lot of weight. Right. My tits are, like, the size, like, R. You know, like, I think... <laughs> There's nothing wrong I with that. Remember. Yeah, well, I mean, you try counting that around. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's insane. Is it, a boy? Really is it insane. a boy or a girl? Boy or a girl? It is. It's a boy. It's a boy. Oh, my God. That's exciting, though. I, you know, I don't know. I'm on. I'm two, year, two and a half years post-delivery, so like you get, you get the good stuff once they get here, but it's a, it's a game changer, you know? It definitely changes everything in a real way, but it's, uh, I don't know. It, I always say this, and every time I talk to somebody about this particular thing is that everything everybody tells you is true. And so it's almost silly to talk about it because it's all been said a million times before. But the one thing nobody told me, or one of the things nobody told me is that kids are like drugs. And, uh, like when your kid gets here and, you know, especially once you get out of like the, the weeds, you know, post delivery where you're like exhausted and you start to get into a little bit of a rhythm, like you just, you find yourself like sniffing your child and it's like this rush and then they start smiling and it's like you just did like Coke or something. It's really weird. Uh, but there are no diminishing returns. Like every time your kid is happy or laughs, like you get a a very palpable shot of adrenaline and like, like biochemical joy. It's really true. So there's, you know, there's Until that. they turn into like... Adam Lanza. <laughs> well, but at least you have a good window of like 14 years, to, you know. <laughs> um, but no, I don't know. I, I get excited about it. I think it's a good thing. And I think that it's really, uh, I don't know, it's positive. It, it'll make you feel good. And, you know, kids are wonderful. We'll talk after like, <laughs> my vagina has been like ripped in half. <laughs> Oh my god! You're gonna, I mean, you're going to get the C-section, or you know, no, you're going to go full delivery. Well, I was going to get a C-section. I mean, I was like, "Fuck that!" Like, I do not need. I just don't need it. Like, I, I'm not. I'm sure it's very clear that, like, I'm not one of those people who's been like dying to have a baby my entire life. <laughs> like, what, were it not for my husband, um, I, you know. I very possibly could have gone through my life with never having children and being perfectly happy about it. Well, um, and you, I mean, you had relationships with women prior, is that right? I have had relationships with women prior. Okay, so who you were... can't get you who can't get you pregnant. Right. I was going to say it's much safer. <laughs> you should have stuck with chicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's crossed my mind. It's not too late to go back. I guess right. No, you can always go back. If, if this doesn't work out, I guess I can give my husband the baby and then just become a lesbian. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you met him and then the, you guys got married and then weren't trying, pregnant, and now away. Mm -hmm. away. He, was, he, he was supposed to be a one-night stand. Jesus. So where did you guys meet?
we met in Tel Aviv. This is part of, um, this is like sort of the end of the book. Like, really, of, of really giving it, yeah, I'm really giving it all away here. Um, yeah, that's, um, we met in Tel Aviv and, um, are you, are you Jewish? I am Jewish. Okay. I mean, I'm not religious, but I, you know, my mom's from Tel Aviv. I was there, uh, I was in Tel Aviv last September. I was doing research for a novel that I was working on, and I was there um, for a brief time, but I got to check out Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. It was pretty cool. Oh, wow. What what novel? What were you researching? Uh, it's sort of a long story, but basically it involved a kidney sale because there was like a shortage in Israel of kidney sales due to like the burial practices and laws and blah, blah, blah. And so I had a character. Wow. I had a character who was contemplating selling one of his organs for cash, and he went over there. So I needed to go see it because I had never seen it. I'm not Jewish. I have no context, you know, and I didn't know how to write about it if I had never been there. So, uh, but the funny thing is that I have a young child, and I felt bad leaving my wife with her on her own. So I went for like three and a half days from LA. So it was like an insane oh trip. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But be- beautiful place. I mean, you know, Tel Aviv's a super cool town and, uh, Jerusalem is obviously like a, a, a head trip. I don't know if you, did you go there and check out the old town and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been there a bunch. I've spent a lot of time over there because my mom's family is there. Oh, okay. Well, so let's So talk, let's... I started going there as a kid. Okay, and then you and then you were there, and you met your husband, and this was supposed to be a one night stand. Like, let's let's go inside that night. Like, what happened? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, I went. Um, I mean, and this really is sort of um, part of the very large part of the story of the book. I mean, the book is really sort of um, it's a memoir, um, but it's 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 a, it's sort of it's a comedy. I mean, it's a it's a if there were a film, it would be a romantic comedy, sort of a dirty romantic comedy, I think. Like, the narrative arc is very much a love story. Um, I hadn't been to Israel in 15 years, um, and every time, I, because I'd been there so much as a kid, I every time I had the opportunity to leave the country, I would go someplace else. And so it wound up that I hadn't been there in 15 years, which is crazy. Um and my cousin was getting married, and I'm an only child, and, like, we sort of grew up in tandem, um, he, he in Tel Aviv and me in New York. And uh, the year before I went, I had just broken up with my boyfriend of 10 years and had had this, like, very, very dark year. And my grandmother died, and so I was squatting in her apartment in the East Village. Um, and... I said, you know, no matter what, after coming out of that very dark year, um, most most of which was spent, like, languishing on the pink plastic-covered couch, which is on the cover of the book. I was going to say, I'm, is, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. That's actually my grandmother's couch, is which is awesome. also a su- super funny story, um, which I'll tell you after if we have time. But that story of the couch is really incredible. Anyway, I spent about a year on that couch chain smoking and like watching like a law and order SVU and just like really sort of beside myself. And, um, were you close with your grandmother? Um, sort of, I, I mean, she was sort of a tough cookie. Like I liked her a lot, but she was like, I'd been begging her to put my name on her lease for like, I don't know, 10 years. And she just categorically refused to, like I could have 
It was a part was like an enormous two bedroom. She was paying like seventy dollars a month rent when she moved in, and like oh. by the time I got it, it was like a grand a month, which is like a fucking joke. Yeah. For a two, like it was, it was ridiculous. So I, I, I was close to her in a certain way. Um, I, as I said in the book, I think that you know her dropping dead was sort of like the biggest favor she ever did for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I got, I finally got the apartment. Right. Um, you still have. But so once I got, no, I don't. Huh. No, I had to give it up. I had to um, because she wouldn't put my fucking name on the lease. If she put my name on the lease, I would still have it. Damn, that's. A, I mean, because I know what New York rent is like. I mean, thousand bucks a month for a two bedroom is insane. I mean, it's it's unheard of. I mean, it's just unheard of unless you've been there for a million years, and she had. She'd been there for like fifty something years. What's your problem, Grandma? Like, put your granddaughter on the lease, right? Thank you. That's what. That's what. Hell yes. <laughs> God, I'm pissed off about this, and it's not even my apartment. Um, I'm sure there are like I'm sure there are like twelve NYU students living there now. They've like divided <laughs> it up into like a nine bedroom apartment. They're all like twitching on Adderall, like you know. Totally. Totally. Um, anyway, long story short is that my cousin had come to visit during that dark period and he really sort of saved me, you know, like it was like a jolt of, of life, of energy. Um, and like he sort of brought me back to myself and he was getting married. Um, when he got back to Tel Aviv, he called me and told me that he was getting married and it was like, you know, three months he's getting married and, um, you know, I better be at the wedding. And so I had moved out. After that, I moved out of the apartment. I got another apartment. You know, I finally felt like a human being again. Um, And so I went to my cousin's wedding, and um, my husband's name is Guy, and met Guy, although I don't remember meeting him because I was just shit-faced at the wedding. Like, there's a picture of me at the end of the night with a yarmulke on and tahini, like, all over my face, like, shoveling half a falafel sandwich in my face. Awesome. And I guess Guy saw me and he just fell in love. Are you serious? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, love at first sight kind of thing for Yeah, totally, totally. And then, so I don't remember meeting him, but then I met him maybe two days later, my aunt and my uncle had a party in their garden in Tel Aviv. Um, and he walked in, and he's one of my cousin's best friends, but I didn't know any of this. But he, So he just walks in, and I was like, oh, my God. And I hadn't had sex in qu- quite a while at that point. I mean, I had, like, all of these, like, crazy one-night things with a whole list of, you know, a variety of people, all, all of which are, you know, in great detail in the book. But it was just one disaster after the other. Because, I mean, as you can imagine, somebody who's been laying around, like, chain-smoking, watching Law and, Law and Order all day long is probably not in the best um, mental space, right? <laughs> <laughs> not making the best decisions. Right. Um, so... By the time I was in Israel, though, I was, like, I was in good shape again. Like, I'd gotten my shit together. I'd moved out of my grandmother's apartment. Like, I had a new place. Like, I was, like, feeling like myself again. And I saw Guy, and Guy, to this day, swears that, like, I was looking at him like a dog in heat, I believe, is his, is his, <laughs> word, or, or his words. 
But I was like, I'm having sex with this person if it's like the last thing I ever do. Um, but he was really shy about it. He was really shy about talking to me. So by the time, I mean, there's like this whole story and it's again, all in the book and I'm sure it's much more um, articulate in there and um, more fun to read than it is for me to go through the whole story. Oh, but no, I mean, please, please long... go through, go through the story. <laughs> well, long story short is that I wound up missing um, my flight back to New York and what you missed it yeah i missed it so like i saw him in my aunt and uncle's house nothing happened like i was just like i would have gone upstairs and had sex with him like in the bathroom but nothing doing like he was not like he was just shy so you're that you're that that forward like for real you would do that or you wouldn't about that forward or that slight (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i would yes i would have why not yeah no, I'm all for it. Right? Just, it's just great to hear. You know, usually you hear like, you know, I want there to be a courtship and I want the, you know, I don't know, maybe a, Oh no. Yeah. You're no. Like, no courtship at all. Like let's do it in the bathroom. Well, I mean, there's like a difference between, I'm, yeah, no, I mean, no, I think that like, I'm, I've always been like very much a person of like, you know, you do, you should do what you want to do. I mean, if you want a courtship, then don't fuck somebody in the bathroom, you know? <laughs> but plus, like, but, you know, in bathrooms, like, obviously public restrooms, I've, I've always had, like, kind of a thing against, like, sex in public bathrooms because they're dirty and, like, where do you go? It's like this people have been in there, you know, but if it's at your aunt's well, house. That's sort of, well, that's, that's sort of gross, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to, like, maybe, like, you know, that's, like, something, like, when you're, like, 22 and you're, like, all fucked up on coke and you're in, like, a club or something, like, that's okay. Yeah. But now now that's just sort of gross. Like, I don't think, like, a filthy public bathroom is appropriate for... Well, and it's, like, the whole, a, like, my... A, 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 a lady of my skin. <laughs> Well, and then the, uh, that, I mean, it's also kind of, you can also kind of fold uh, the Mile High Club into that because that's all, that always involves like, and I don't know why you call it a bathroom everywhere else, but a lavatory when you're on a plane, but you're in an, air, in an airplane, first of all, which to me is like as disgusting as it gets regardless. Totally. And then you're crammed into that lavatory, which like has been like, you know, improperly or partially cleaned, you know, for like the past 10 years. And I just think that's kind of, I think there's, I think it's overrated is what I'm trying to say. I think that, uh, like, a bathroom on a plane is probably, I mean, honestly, outside of, like, a hospital is probably, like, the filthiest, most disease-ridden <laughs> place on Earth. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. And, and just also have, like, just uncomfortable. It's just too small and dirty. Too small. Know. And then, like, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people just, like, defecating in there <laughs> on, like, a daily basis. I hope. I mean, yeah. I hope that people aren't uh, defecating too much on planes. But I guess it happens. I mean, I've been on planes where it happens, and it's just like, I'm a person. See, this yeah. is how. This is where I'm at with airplane travel. Is that like, even on a flight to Tel Aviv, like I come prepared. Like I will have. I, I think people who bring or eat smelly food on airplanes, like I have, mm-hmm. I take great issue with them. Like I have like raw almonds because they're inoffensive in a little plastic bag. And it's like, <laughs> I will eat those, but it's like if you – and especially on like shorter domestic flights, I don't understand these people who like get on the plane with a bag of like McDonald's or like KFC or whatever the hell it is and then proceed to eat it in front of you. It's like, listen, it's four hours. Like you can't wait four hours to eat a freaking meal. Like have a snack, but make sure it's not smelly. Like 
I don't know. It's super disgusting. It really is. I hate it. It's a pet peeve of mine. I think you need to be more cognizant of your space, you know, and people in your space. I I agree. When I get on a plane, I take a handful of Valium, and <laughs> I don't want which I don't are, want like wake wake me up when we get there. Yeah, and Valium, we should add are odorless. They're not offensive, you know. That's true. They're not offensive. I literally get on the plane and I take pills, and I cover. I mean, I I'm basically in like a burqa. Like <laughs> I cover like my head with. I bring a blanket. I bring a pillow. And I don't, I mean, to me, it's like a miracle that I get to where I'm going. I mean, being on a plane to begin with is um, a very jarring experience for me always. Yeah, I'm not, a, um, I'm not a huge fan, but I mean, it's like so convenient and, you know, it's amazing. I just don't get how it works. Like, I think that that's probably the thing that like why it freaks me out so much. Like, I don't understand how we're in the air right now and why we're not dead. Well, and that's the thing too, though, is that like, I don't know if I want to know, you know what I'm saying? Like I, maybe it would, maybe it would reassure me if I knew about all the safety checks and blah, blah, blah. But you know, when you start, probably not. Cause the, probably the, not. And the thing about it is that I don't want to know how much human input there is into the process because where human input exists, the possibility mm-hmm. for, er- for error exists. You know? Yeah. I like to believe that these airplanes were made by like gods or something. Yeah, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to know about the guys on the factory floor who are like responsible for like, you know, tightening the bolts on the wings or whatever. Right. Who like could give a shit about anything. <laughs> right. And like are hung over or like, you know, just morons. Uh. Really, it's troubling. So, oh, God. Uh, so guy, you're giving me you're giving me real agita now. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. Uh, and for anyone <laughs> for anyone who's listening to this on an airplane, uh, huge apologies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do not listen to this on an airplane. Although one of my best friends um, is a flight attendant, and she swears that it's um, it's safe. I'm knocking on wood right now, and I'm like my palms are sweating. That's the way I. <laughs> so uh, okay, so guy, shy, you're a dog in heat at this party. You've got your eyes on him, and then how does it actually consummate? Like, how do you guys actually like fall into a real relationship? Like, what was your move? Um, I was relentless. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I um. We, when I missed my flight, we went out to a bar and he was there and, um, just randomly, I no, no, cause he's best friends with my cousin. Oh, so your cousin was setting this so, up. So my cousin, so I said to my cousin, if you're going to drag me out, at least have guy come. So my cousin had guy come and by the time guy got there, I was already like a good four or five drinks in, let's say. Okay. And I'd been I'd been flirting with this other guy, or actually, this other guy had been flirting with me. To be honest, where were you? And, where um, were you? you were in Tel Aviv somewhere. Yeah, I was at a bar in Tel Aviv. I was at this like you know sort of really like dark, smoky, happening bar in Tel Aviv. Like people were like standing on the bar. Like everybody was like screaming. It was very festive, you know. And I like, didn't give a fuck. I was on vacation, you know. It's like a, it's like Coyote Ugly I, in Tel Aviv. It's like the Jewish Coyote. Totally. <laughs> It was like Cancun spring break, circa nineteen ninety seven. You know, were you on? Uh, were you on the beach in Tel Aviv, or like? Is it, was yeah, the, the bar. Yeah. The bar was like coastal. 
No, 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 no. The bar wasn't coastal. It was like in, I mean, the whole city is coastal, right? But it was, I mean, it wasn't like a beach bar. Okay. But okay. it can, I mean, it can be if that makes the story better. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not committed to any of these details, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're there, you're flirting, you're drinking. What are you drinking? So this other, um, what it's called, um, Arak, which is the same thing I had gotten drunk on at the wedding. It's, um, it's like anise. Okay, it's yeah. a pretty popular Middle Eastern drink, and it's like it's like, it's like pastis, and uh, it's like a lic- liqueur. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like licorice, um, and it's pretty strong, actually. Sure. Um, and I'm not that big. Well, now I'm not big, but I wasn't that big then. <laughs> Imagine how much you could drink now with this child in your belly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I thought this other guy was like kind of hot, but he was and by the way I, I, mean, I don't I don't mean to keep interrupting but uh Israeli, no no it's fine Israeli people are hot like they're that's a beautiful people I was there I was like really yeah like, I was kind of blown away by yeah. how beautiful everybody is yeah it's true they're and they're they're also like pretty um I mean maybe guys actually sort of an exception but they're also like pretty forward so this guy was like really like like he was into it you know and I, you know, like I said, I really didn't give a shit. Like I was just fucking around. Um, and then I saw a guy got there. And so I ditched this other dude and I went to go sit next to guy. And I was like, okay, like I'm in, like, we can like leave right now. We can make, I'm like, I got this like in the bag. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to bang this dude before I get on the airplane. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like I'm not leaving this country without getting laid <laughs> by this guy. Like it's not happening. What does guy and look he, like? Is he, is he a really handsome strapping? Lad? Yeah, he, yeah, he is. He's, he's gorgeous. He really is. Um, so you guys are going to have he, a, a very handsome child. It would seem. Right? I, I mean, I hope so. Cause I'm giving it back. If it's not, I do not <laughs> want an ugly baby. <laughs> It'll be beautiful. <laughs> Um, he's, he, he's, he looks Israeli, you know, he has like jet black hair and like big brown eyes and like really long eyelashes and, um, he's, he's very good looking, um, and dark, you know, he's like dark skinned and tan and he's, in, he's, he's, he plays soccer and, you know, he's he's like, great body he's, he's hot like he's fucking hot Dude, I, i'm into him and i'm not even into dudes yeah <laughs> you would be into him trust me right, right um and so i'm sitting down right next to him and like you know it's so obvious i'm flirting with him and i think it's like, pretty obvious that like i'm ready to like get out of the bar too you know i'm like i know he's not like a serial killer because he's my cousin's best friend so you know, like, I feel like I'm not, like, putting my life in danger with, like, this strange man in a foreign country. And he proceeds to launch into the most tedious conversation I have ever been forced to sit through in my life. Like, I, I wanted to shoot myself. I like him even better now. This is what I, I see. I would... He was so boring. <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me? No, he's like, I'm nervous. I'm dying. That's why I'm talking about politics or whatever, you know? like that's... Politics? I would have killed for him to be talking about politics. He was talking about how he couldn't find a parking spot. <laughs> and like, now what the parking situation is, like, in Tel Aviv. Right. Like, on and on and on. And I finally <laughs> was like, I can't take this anymore. And I got up and I left. And I went back to the other dude 
and spent like the rest of the night hanging out with him. Like the whole and night or just like the night, the rest of the night at the bar? The rest of the night at the bar, I went outside and I was making out with him and I, that must have been like, you know, maybe like an hour of making out with this guy and him trying to convince me to go home with him. And I was like, eh, I don't really think so. Like, I'm really not that into you. Like, and then I, like, I saw him suddenly, it's from, maybe it was like one in the morning at that point or something. And like, we were like now like under street lights cause we we're like sitting on a bench in front of the bar. Cause my cousin was still inside and like, I had no other way to get home if I wasn't going to actually go home with somebody else. And I look at this guy and I'm like, Oh my God. I thought that you were hot, but, like, you actually are... You look like a caricature of a Guido in, like, the Sasha Baron Cohen movie. This is what used to happen to me then, I guess, whenever I went outside. <laughs> they finally saw me. <laughs> I was like, I have got to get the fuck out of here right now. Like, this is not good. Like, get, like, a gold chain on. Like, oh. you know, stuff that, like, when you're inside the bar, you, don't you know, see. you don't really notice or, you know, whatever. So I got out of there, and I—I um, I mean, that was sort of that. And um, oh no, this is—I I messed up the story a little bit. Actually, it doesn't matter. I, I missed my flight after that. The, the flight missing happened after that night. That um, nothing happened. So it doesn't—it doesn't really make a difference. Long story short, is that after that was like my first real interaction after the um, garden party with Guy was at that bar. And then I was in Israel for like another week and then I missed my flight. And that was when we went out again and Guy was there and um, he was like, you should come over tomorrow and let me make you dinner. And he was like, or you can come over with your cousin if you want. <laughs> I was like, um, I think I'll leave my cousin at home. <laughs> And but thank you. And I'm supposed to fly back to New York tomorrow. Like, is it really worth staying in Tel Aviv to have dinner with you? Or like, God fucking help me that that's a euphemism for something else that you're just too shy to say. Like, I don't need dinner. There's food in New York. Like, I don't need you to feed me. <laughs> and so that's and, a, and so that was it. That was mm-hmm. and so I went over for dinner and. um and he really had cooked like a like seven course meal. Oh my god! Done. Deal closed. No, I was miserable. You were. Why? Because I didn't go over there to eat, and who wants to have <laughs> sex after you've had like twelve courses? That is true. You know, you have like that's the thing about dating is that like you know my wife and I will go out. We'll be like, okay, we have a sitter, and like we're gonna go out. We got to dinner, and it's gonna be this great night. And then it's like. I am stuffed, and I just drank, like, a bottle of wine, and I feel tired. Let's go home and go to bed. (laughs) Totally. There should be no food involved at all. And that's another thing. In addition to, like, sex and bathrooms and how that never really registered with me is, like, anyone anyone who, like, involves food with sex where it's, like, in the sex act. Do you know what I'm saying? Where it's, like, let's get get strawberries (laughs) out. It's, like, no, I don't want food in the bed. It's disgusting. No, that's that's gross. I'm not into food in the bed. I'm not into, like, get, like, mayonnaise out or, like, something. (laughs) Like, no, no, thank you. I'm not into into mayonnaise in the kitchen. I don't want mayonnaise anywhere. But, you know. Oh, really? Are you, are you, you have that thing? Yeah, like, no, can't, yeah. I can't do it. I have friends who, like, can't do pickles, and I have friends who can't do eggs, and, like, I can't do mayonnaise. Mayonnaise just disgusts me. Yeah. You know, which is, really? Yeah. What? That's 
funny. Pickles? You have friends that can't do pickles? I have a friend uh, who's terrified of pickles, like in, a, in an authentic terror way. Like if he sees one on his plate, it like like cold fear and like has to have someone else remove it. He's also uh, oh my yeah he's a gay man. I don't know if that makes any difference, but it's sort of funny. <laughs> oh my, that's actually really. There's a show about that on like one of those channels, like um, people with like really fucked up fears of foods. Yeah, well, I can I kind of get it. I mean, it's like listen, if someone brings are you a, like that with mayo? Or no, are you like, like no, you can't? no, I can deal. Like you know what I'm saying? I don't have any fears like where I can't deal, but like. If I have a preference, it's like I don't want any mayo on anything. But yet, here's the thing. If if I'm really hungry and there's like mayo on something and I don't realize it, I'll eat it. And like then realize, you know. But if, <laughs> do you know? But if somebody's You're like, fuck it. Yeah. You're like, actually, like mayo is great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, but I don't want to like, I don't want to like take the jar out and like the oily. It's just, it's gross to me. It doesn't work for me at all. But you won't return a sandwich if it's on there. I'm not the, I, I like I'm one of those people who has a hard time being needy in a restaurant. So like I always feel bad. I won't be like um send it back. I can't do that. I'll just either not eat it or I'll eat around it or I'll just you know I'll deal with it. Well, that, that's probably smart because they usually like masturbate into yeah, it. Right. You, um, like, send you, it back. You'll wish it was mayo, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so before... you'll be begging for mayo, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I got to ask you about the plastic covered couch because you mentioned it earlier and said there was a great story. Like, is this something you can talk about on the record? Because I don't, wanna, I don't want to leave my listeners uh, not knowing. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, it is um, that I was obsessed with that couch for, um, I mean, the entire time my grandmother had it. Like, I just loved it. I don't know. If you can really tell in that picture, that it had it, she had it made in like I think the fifties, and it had this really cool like French sort of chaise shape to it. But she never took the plastic off of it because she didn't want it to quote unquote get ruined. So I mean, just think of like, is that normal? <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, that's insane. But in any event, by the time um, after she died, like, I was like, I have dibs on this fucking couch. So I took the couch and I took it with me to my next apartment and then to my next apartment after that where I moved in with Guy, you know, after he moved to New York. And um, it needed to be reupholstered. Like, the shape was amazing, but the couch was was a shit already. Um... And I was like, we're getting rid of this thing. It's gross. We're buying a new couch. It costs as much to get this thing refurnished, uh, reupholstered, excuse me, as it does to buy, like, a nice new couch. So, like, you're out. And so we basically got rid of it. And I won't tell the entire story because I don't want to ruin the book. But um, we basically got rid of it. And about a week later, my editor um, at HarperCollins called me, and she was like, I know that we were thinking about, you know, this one direction for the cover, but, you know, we just had this like, really long conversation and we were thinking that it would be a much better idea if we used you on the, on the couch for the cover. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. Like, I donated that to a thrift store in the East Village a week ago. I've been, like, schlepping that couch around with me forever. And, like, I just got rid of it. 
So I had to call the thrift store in East Village and HarperCollins had to buy the couch back from them. <laughs> that's your grandma. That's your grandmother at work right there. There's some sort uh, Totally, totally. And of course, I had by that time gotten rid of the plastic cover. So I, um, I found this guy um, named Juan in Queens who actually made that plastic cover. For the couch. You've, oh, not like he didn't make the original, but he just made one, mm-hmm. a new one for the couch. Yeah, I mean, he had to custom make a plastic cover for the couch. I, I called like 37 places. Like, nobody makes plastic covers for couches. I was going like to say. 2013. <laughs> That's a specialty. <laughs> That's a specialty field. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then we like pretty much threw it out the window after we shot the cover. Yeah, well, at least it made it under the cover, so it's like it, you know, it lives on. Totally, totally. I mean, there's some pretty raunchy things went down on that couch. <laughs> Good thing there was plastic. My grandmother. Would, oh my god! Absolutely, my grandmother would be like rolling over in her grave. <laughs> So, uh, last question, because I'm looking at the book description right here, and I have to ask because I think it, my audience would definitely be interested, but it says you had a run-in with Philip Roth. I did have a run-in with Philip Roth. Describe. Uh, there, well, it's a whole chapter in the book, actually, um, my run-in with Philip Roth. Um, I I don't know. I'm like, I'm in a room and telling you the whole book. Well, just tease um, it. Just tease it. Like, what were the, what was the context? Where were you? Was he clothed? What happened? Was he clothed? I'm just, I, I tease. But, like, what was... Uh, what no, was... no, no. You're, you're actually, I was like, hey, did you read the book yet? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I met him at a Russian Samovar, which is a very famous Russian restaurant in New York. Um, and I was actually introduced to him by Mikhail Baryshnikov. Um, so how the hell do you know Mikhail Baryshnikov? Oh, it's a long story. Um, but Misha said, um, feel it. This is Periel. She is great writer. And I was like, are you trying to humiliate me? Like beyond, it's like, it's like introducing like some like young artist to Picasso is a great painter. I was like, what are you like, <laughs> trying to like, ruin my life? Like, what are you doing? Right. And what did, and, Ro- what did Roth say? Because you're a great writer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting the sweaty palms again, thinking about this. And, um, I said, well, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said, sit down. Until I, I've never fucking sat down so quickly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you say, sir. <laughs> um, and that was the beginning of a much longer um, story, which is, um, I think the chapter in the book is called Life is Like a Bowl of Cherries. Did you hook up with him? Can we just at least ask that question? No, I can't answer that. You have to read the book. Oh my god! I have to, I have to leave something for you for for, for for to buy the book. So that's, I, that's actually an exquisite uh, cliffhanger. So we'll leave it there. <laughs> Did she hook up with Philip Roth? You'll have to buy the book. It's called On My Knees. Uh, Periel, it's been so fun talking with you. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the baby. Congratulations. Uh, I hope the rest of your pregnancy isn't too terrible. And um, you know, I hope that. You have as much fun with your little boy as I've had with my little girl. Oh, thank you so much. I love your podcast, and it's 
really been great talking to you and so nice of you to have me. I really appreciate it. All right, you guys, there you have it. That is Periel Ashenbrand. Her new memoir due out on June 18th, 2013. It's called On My Knees. It's published by Harper Perennial. So go pre-order it. Get it when it comes out. You can find Periel online at periellashenbrand.com. She's on the Facebook, and her Twitter handle is at Miss Periel. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. It's free, and it's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best way to listen to this show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can organize your favorite shows, uh, and you can access the full archives and premium content as well, all via the app. So please go get that. Otherwise, uh, it's midday, and I'm here in a zombie fog of insomnia. In a moment, I'm going to go outside into the bright Los Angeles sunshine. It's a beautiful day. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to try to operate. I'm going to wear sunglasses, and I will try to breathe deeply. Please stay away from uh, pool bars, incidentally. Please stay away from outdoor sushi bars. Do not, under any circumstances, eat raw fish in direct sunlight. Pretty please for me. Just, uh, you know, whenever you see a pool bar, I want you to think of me for the rest of your life. And I want you to be disgusted and offended and quietly enraged. Please remember that T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and Reader's Digest magazine both debuted in 1922. And that Pietro Aretino died in the middle of a hysterical fit of laughter that devolved into an apoplectic stroke. That is all for now. I hope you enjoyed this one, you guys. I hope it was a pleasant experience, and I hope that if you did indeed enjoy uh, the experience, that you will tweet about it and or Facebook about it in glowing terms in all lowercase with one ironic emoticon included. Okay? Okay. Uh, I love you all. I am mentally hugging you right now. Do you feel it? That's uh, sort of gross. Imagine, uh, I want you to imagine the two of us hugging at a pool bar that smells of tequila, cheap domestic beer, spicy tuna rolls, and low tide. <laughs> <laughs>